According to mythology, there was once an antediluvian, utopian country that was inhabited by learned, intrepid men and women. It was the nation of Atlantis. But, regrettably, it was forever lost beneath the waves of its namesake, Atlantic Ocean. From the perspective of Greece, Atlantis was a world away. Plato said that it was farther even than the Pillars of Hercules, which supposedly bore the inscription, There is nothing beyond. The Pillars of Hercules were the western edge of the world, with only the endless Mar Atlanticus beyond. Now, it might be surprising to learn that the pillars are indeed real, and you can visit them if you'd like. Since antiquity, the pillars of Hercules have referred to two small mountains, the Abila Mons in North Africa and the Rock of Gibraltar in Iberia. The two monoliths guard the Strait of Gibraltar, the one and only passage between the Mediterranean Sea and the Atlantic Ocean. Good morrow, everybody. My name is Ben Laboot, and welcome to Stories of Symmetry, a fortnightly podcast dedicated to revealing beauty and purpose through another look at faith, the sacred, and the stories that unite us all. In Greek mythology, there is a character named Heracles. Despite his nationality, he is better known by the Roman form of his name, Hercules. Call him Heracles or Hercules, but do not call him a man, for in fact he was not a man, but a demigod. Being half-god, he took after the gods of his culture who were salacious, capricious, unruly, surly, intractable, and frankly, unlovable. The only real virtues of the Olympians were their physical traits, like beauty and strength. It is no surprise, then, that Heracles' prowess was his physical strength, a quality that he employed in nearly all of his pursuits. Like when, for example, he journeyed to the far western edge of the world to gather the kind of Jerian, and there he piled the rocks that became the Pillars of Hercules. Though he was a demigod, we ask ourselves, what does it mean to be godlike? Indeed, Heracles accomplished twelve superhuman labors, from killing the fierce Nemean lion to retrieving from the underworld its tricephalous hellhound called Cerberus. But do such actions become godly men? Looking to most gods and most religions of the ancient world, then maybe. But there is one notable exception the God of Israel, the God of Jesus. Physical strength is good and worthy, but that's where it stops. The Bible does not ascribe to it ideas of godliness. Mountains are the quintessential images of strength and fortitude, yet standing amid such grandeur, the psalmist said, I lift my eyes to the mountains. Does my hope come from the mountains? No. My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven, and earth, and the mountains themselves. 
when it comes to the question, what is impressive? Or moreover, what is impressive to God? Strength is not the answer. Heroes like Heracles and Achilles needed to prove their might and live lives that would be noticed by their gods, would be impressive to their gods, for that was their only hope of reaching the divine. We, however, are liberated from that worldview. We don't need to prove ourselves to God in any way. I don't need to stand before kings or armies, my community or my peers, or even my God, and assert my worth through physical dominance, challenging others with words like, Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Achilles sailed to Ilium to win glory, through feats such as dueling Hector of the Fulgent Helm, and indeed it won him not only glory, but a sempaternal name that we still recognize and know even today. Yet, despite that recognition, his feats never earned him God's praise. Praise not from the chimerical Olympians, but from the one true God and Lord of hosts. Now, don't think that I am disparaging the idea of strength, for be it physical or otherwise, strength is a noble quality to which we should all aspire. But where the Christian tradition branches from that of the Greeks is that the God of Israel is not impressed with your or my strength. And more importantly, our possession or lack thereof have no bearing upon our relationship with God. Strength will not get you noticed, and neither will the lack of it get you ignored nor disqualify you from partnering with God to accomplish the works of heaven. What God wants to see is neither strength nor ability, but trust. It's not capability that God desires, but willingness to rely and depend on God. Remember that the Holy One established the universe through a word, rained fire on Egypt, staunch the flow of the river Jordan, and so much more. How arrogant then to think that my one rep max can give God something that wasn't there before. As if the creator needed the abilities of the created, as if they were something adsatitious rather than imbued from the maker of heaven and earth and even the mountains. My offering to God is not the oblation itself but the trusting heart which gives God that which is most dear. If my strength is rhetoric, then it is not my words themselves. For who could be a better order than the one who said let there be light? But my willingness to use that skill to share the gospel's message. And if the Holy Spirit has given me the charism of healing, then it is not curing ailments per se, but the charity of my heart and determination to promote God's kingdom here on earth. Therefore, if it comes to pass that I do stand before kings or armies, my community or my peers, then let me not boast about my strength, but about God's strength working through me. The 50th chapter of Isaiah says, The Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. 
Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. God's working in and through us allows for the fruition of holy things. And while we are privileged to partner with the divine, we are far from equals. For I cannot add one scintilla to God's plans outside of my willingness to follow the command and purposefully use that which has been gifted, yes, gifted to me. The way to grow, then, is not to focus inward, but upward, thereby increasing the potential of God's work through me. Consider that when Moses was called to be the mouthpiece of God, he declined. Moses said that he was not an orator, but God told him to do it anyway. Therefore, it happened that when Moses spoke, it was packed with that much more power. For what was heard was not clever Moses, but truly God. Likewise, when it came time for him to perform miracles, again, it was not Moses whose power was demonstrated, it was God's. If Moses were so great and mighty, then we would have seen a man at work. But through the weaknesses of Moses, God shone forth, and God was his strength. Truly, it was not a man that the world saw, but God. You see, it is through weakness that God works, and there, the Holy One can be revealed. Amazing things wrought by an outstanding human being are attributed to that person. But great deeds achieved through an unlikely hero are attributed to God's working through that unexpected champion. And all throughout the Bible, God does this, though most saliently, through those chosen by Jesus to lead his new movement. Like Peter, the Opsimath firebrand, a fisherman by trade, chosen to lead the incipient faith. His country accent was thick enough that he was mocked for it, but thousands converted to Christ under his headship. Consider also Paul, the Jewish extremist who once persecuted the early Christians and oversaw their martyrdoms. Jesus confronted him and commissioned him to share the gospel, the message he had been zealously trying to eradicate and bring it to the Gentiles and outward to the farthest reaches of humanity, even beyond the pillars of Hercules. So what do these, as well as Noah and Abraham and Solomon and so many other church heroes, have in common? On the one hand, very little. But on the other hand, they all, albeit however imperfectly, trusted God when it might have seemed counterintuitive. And they all, again, however imperfectly, lived out an idea that John the Baptist so succinctly captured when he said, God must increase, and I, I must decrease. John the Baptist understood that his role was not to promulgate himself, but to share God. He compared his role to that of a best man at a wedding. For the best man's greatest joy is seeing the smile on the groom's face. 
it's understandable how we can get confused. After all, God lets us stand up front, sharply dressed in the top hats and tails of a groomsman, or radiantly adorned in the gown of a bridesmaid. So it can be easy to forget that the ceremony is not about us, not in the slightest. The best man, the maid of honor, the officiant, though these people are front and center, they are merely the scenery and the lighting that are designed to limb the true focus and the real reason for which the guests have gathered. They are there for the couple, the bride and groom. And it is the true best man who understands this and steps back, decreasing himself so that the groom can increase, just as it is the true best man whose greatest joy is supporting the groom and seeing the smile on his face. So there is a shift that must occur, when in service to God, whether gradually or instantly, a paradigm shift needs to happen, a moment when we realize that our positions, center stage, extra, or crew, our resources, few or many, our assertions, temerity or timidity, our strengths, our weaknesses, and the entirety of our quiddity, that is, our essence, are useful to God only when the ambition of these things is removed from us and gifted back to God, from whom they all originally came. Heracles had the gall to aim his bow at the sun and threaten to shoot it from the welkin if it did not lessen its intensity. Apollo, the sun god, admired Heracles for it. However, I do not think that the Lord of Hosts is amused by that behavior. Indeed, when Samson became too proud, the god of Abraham revoked his strength and saw him severely punished. But when Samson had come around and submitted himself once more to the will of God, then the Lord returned his strength. You see, neither strength nor lack thereof is the issue. The issue is what we do with it. God gave Moses a staff that worked miracles, but on the day that Moses became more concerned with saving face than trusting God, the staff became his curse, and it became the reason why he was forbidden from entering the promised land. Be it strength or some other attribute, if it impresses mankind, then we can easily be carried away by it. For when people admire that which God has bestowed upon me, it is easy to lose sight of the gift and start believing that I am more than I am, more than I am, more than God. But this is pride. It is hubris. Our gifts are like money, which is inherently neither good nor bad. Yet Jesus would say that it is easier to drive a car through a soda straw than for a rich person to follow God. Why? Money isn't the problem. The problem is how some people treat it. So what can be done? For surely the situation is not hopeless. Of course not. God wants us to use our gifts, but God wants us to do so in a healthy way. And the better we are at something, the more humble we need to be, and the more conscious effort we'll have to put toward that end. For the person who lacks strength, the solution is not to be content remaining weak. For the strong, the solution is not to beg for weakness. Just like with wealth, 
the solution is not to become a pauper. Such attitudes place the guilt upon the strength or the money instead of where it rightly belongs, the mentality of the person who has it. If you are at a job where you're making more money than ever before, don't ask for a pay decrease. Rather, take deliberate steps to increase your connection to God in a way that, at the very least, keeps pace with your paycheck. And if you get to the point of physical strength where you can sling bales across a field, then don't despair. Rather, ask God how you can use your strength to serve. The Bible is full of delicate balances and difficult ideas. Ideas like God meeting you where you are and loving you there and accepting you at that place unconditionally juxtaposed to the idea that we need to grow and become reshaped as mature Christians. Too often, people receive one without the other. Some are told that they need to change before God will accept them. But that's just not true. God is eager to embrace you just as you are, exactly as you are. But regrettably, others are told that if ten years into their journey as a Christ follower, their lives look no different than they did as non-believers before meeting Jesus, then that's okay. But the honest truth is that it's not okay. But how can that be? Does God accept me? Or does God expect me to change? Well, it's both. Because two things can be true at once. Today, I want to mention the Beatitudes. That word comes from the Latin beatutido, which is the condition of blessing, or state of blessedness, as the Beatitudes refer to several blessings that Jesus announced. And once you hear them, you'll likely recognize at least a few. But for as much as I enjoy proclaiming the Beatitudes, I am always hesitant. I am hesitant because, although they are uplifting for all, they are especially directed to, and comforting for, the downtrodden, the overworked, the aggrieved, the meek, the troubled, the wallflower, the beleaguered, and all those who are dispirited. Upon hearing words like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, we can be tempted to believe that poor in spirit is something to be sought after. But it shouldn't take too much imagination to think that God doesn't want us to spend our days poor in spirit, or meek, or needy. Like the very journey of Christians, the Beatitudes reassure their listeners that God loves, blesses, and unconditionally accepts them where they are. Nevertheless, the goal is not stagnation, but growth. We've discussed a lot today, but I hope that the common thread has been visible through it all. We began with Heracles, who represented an antiquated way of thinking, the idea that we need to be bold and show off our strength and prowess for God to notice us. But then I said that the Christian God is different and does not abide by that notion. The reality is that we don't need to show off or try to get God's attention, because the Lord already notices us and is ready and willing to partner with us in accomplishing the works of heaven. And, 
being an effective partner does not mean showing off our strengths, but agreeing to trust and let ourselves be used by God. We visited Isaiah chapter 50 to see an example of a challenge. It's smack talk, really, bragging not upon the person's own strength, but centering upon the knowledge that God works through him. Because if that's the reality, no enemy could overcome him. We noted that the more we defer to God, the more the Holy Spirit can do through us. And this happens best when we fully embrace and take to heart the idea that promoting God is far better than promoting self. John the Baptist said that God must increase, but he himself must decrease. And to illustrate that point, he compared it to a groom's friends relishing the groom on his wedding day. We considered having strength and letting God put to use whatever strengths we possess, because after all, such strengths are not our doings, but gifts from God. And we must needs constantly remind ourselves of that fact. And the bigger the gift, the bigger the reminder needs to be. For the other half, who can't readily identify any strengths in ourselves, those of us like tongue-tied Moses, we shouldn't despair, because God shines brightest while working through weakness. The crux of it is that God can and wants to use all of us. Some are strong, and some are weak. Some of us rely too much on strength and need to acknowledge our weaker areas to let God work through them. Some of us are content in weakness and need to strive toward growth so that we can take on a more active role in promoting God's purposes. Walking with the divine is full of difficult ideas. Like how, to be its most effective, the church needs money and those wealthy enough to provide it. But how that same money can turn hearts away from God. Or, like how God needs strong partners to build heaven here on earth. But how God also needs weaknesses to therein make poignant demonstrations of determination, power, majesty, holiness, greatness, and the unparalleled goodness that is God. With these things in mind, I am happy to share with you the life-changing words of the Beatitudes as they are remembered by the Gospel of Matthew. If, at some places, the wording is different than a version you may have heard previously, that's because sometimes we need a fresh translation to remember what it's like to hear Jesus' blessing for the very first time. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for God will comfort them. Blessed are the level-headed, for they shall inherit the land. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are those who respond to the needs of others, for they shall obtain God's mercy. Blessed are those whose motives are pure, for they shall see God. Blessed are the ones who restore broken relationships, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted when they stand in defense of God, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people revile you and persecute you and malign you on account of Jesus. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, 
for persecuted in the same way were the prophets who came before you. As you go forth, until we meet again in two weeks for episode 10, I encourage you to pray about everything we've discussed today, and as you do so, go with God, go in peace.